All right. Hey, Liz, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. Hey, thanks for having me. By the way, I should have asked. You don't mind me calling you Liz, do you? Liz is preferred. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Great. I was a little presumptuous there. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Elizabeth is my, my fancy publishing name. Right. Sure. Well, you know, we're hardly on a first name basis yet, so I didn't <laughs> want to uh, seem rude. Mm-mm. So it's really great to be talking with you right now because I'm not sure it, you know, what sort of news you follow or where you're at in the current kind of uh, – uh, culture wars, I guess you could call them, but uh, you may or may not know that controversies over genetics and things like IQ are actually back in the news right now. Right. I don't know if you happen if you happen to catch it, but there's sort of been a big dust up between uh, Sam Harris and Ezra Klein. Have you followed this at all by any chance? Um, I was hoping you would not ask about that. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. We don't need to. We don't need to go I, into I, any territory you don't want to. I I know of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the semester's just ending here and, um, I haven't yet, uh, listened, but I certainly will. I, I've read a little bit of the coverage of it, so I'm a little bit knowledgeable. Yeah. Sure. Well, don't worry. I'm not going to test you on any of it. And Thanks. I'm also not, you know, I'm not really interested at all in kind of, uh, hitting any especially controversial or hot button issues uh, or questions. I'm, I'm really interested in the, the hard science behind things like ideology and Mm -hmm. how, you know, really understanding how things like causal attributions break down across the ideological spectrum, because I Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of uh, widely held beliefs about this sort of thing that are actually quite not true or or misleading at best. And so the reason that I've wanted to talk with you in particular is because you're basically an expert on the relationship between ideology and things like science denial and how people do or do not uh, think about things like genetics as causal explanations for social phenomena. So it has obvious application to all of these messy, difficult, controversial topics that are highly salient right now. But, you know, I really want to kind of pick your brain about the underlying social science that might help inform, you know, how we interpret these debates. But uh, don't worry, I'm not going to have you uh, wading through any of the uh, really difficult and messy, and, and and also let's be honest, you know, quite quite dangerous and fraught um, culture wars sort of uh, topics. So right, right, it, it, yeah, it is very fraught. I mean, I, I guess I would say I'm I'm an expert in how fraught it is, and um, <laughs> so for that reason, I am very aware of of how dangerous these conversations can be in public. Um, right. You know, this is a little unfair, but but my part of my out is I I really reside in public opinion land. So for Mm -hmm. the most part, I don't get into, you know, uh, what I think scientific consensus is on a topic. Um, I'm more interested in what's in lay people's minds as they think about these topics. Um, Every once in a while, I'll, if I feel, you know, extra confident, I might say something about what scientists actually believe about uh, what underlies some sort of human difference. But mostly I'm talking about lay people. Okay, that's a great caveat. Yeah, my mm-hmm. research is also somewhat in public opinion land also. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why public opinion research is actually really interesting and useful is that so many people who comment on things in the media, really, they do live in bubbles, and they actually often don't really know what the general distribution of opinion is. It's very yeah. tempting. It's very tempting for especially, I think, media writers uh, to generalize from their social circles. But actually, when you look at the public opinion data on a lot of issues, it's actually quite surprising, I think, to people who live in media bubbles. So, yeah, that's part of why I think, you know, uh, you'll have a lot to contribute to to some of the, you know, the questions that I that I have. So maybe we should just kind of jump right into mm-hmm. some of the social science. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So I was thinking about how to kind of uh, break this open in a general way. And I think Maybe the the best way to do this is to just ask you in general, you know, there is, I think it's fair to say there's a widespread sense, especially in left wing circles today, that science denial is, it's seen as a right wing phenomenon. Um, Especially, you know, people think of it, well known examples around evolution and global warming. But you've researched a lot about how different people think about science on the left and on the right. And I think one of the implications that comes from your research and, of course, from, from your colleagues also that you co-authored with 
uh, and other researchers in the field, is that actually science denial is a bipartisan phenomenon. Is that fair to say? Or maybe you could, uh, you know, give us a little tour of what that looks like. Sure. So, um, you know, there's, there are going to be lots of, lots of caveats in my answer. Um, so first of all, first caveat is that I'm really an expert on the U S and so, um, you know, when I'm talking about public opinion, it's almost always from data on Americans. And I realize it may be different, very different in other parts of the world. Um, so, uh, the first thing I'll say about folks in the U.S. is that I actually think on balance there is something to this claim that there's more science denial on the right. Hmm. Um, I think that there are two reasons for why that is on balance. One is that uh, the left in the U.S. is increasingly more educated, hmm. so they're going to have a greater sophistication in uh, and appreciation for science. And also, um, you know, scientists themselves are more liberal. And that in and of itself is going to create more trust um, between, you know, liberal lay people and the scientific community. And so some of the distrust you see on average among conservatives is because they they don't trust scientists' motives, right? They, they think that, that they're politically motivated by, you know, leftist preferences. So I think on balance, there, there is a difference. Um, but I also think that <clears throat> the gap is, is exaggerated, um, mm. especially on the left. Um, and, you know, you can look at data uh, from various publications. I actually um, edited a, a volume with Jamie Druckmann um, on, on science and politics. And kind of the upshot there was that um, yes, on balance, you see conservatives trusting science less, but you also certainly see evidence of bias among liberals. And so one way to, um, I think, to have a conversation about this that is, uh, I think, more comprehensive and allows us to better understand what's going on on the right and left is actually to not talk about science denial, hmm. but to talk about science bias. Okay. And so, you know, it's a, it's a less loaded term mainly, but also what this allows us to do is to think about the fact that people on the right and on the left, um, they, it's not that individuals, even those who we might think of as denying science for example, people who don't believe that humans are causing the climate change or people who deny evolution. Mm -hmm. It's not that they themselves see themselves as disliking science or disliking facts. It's that they are cherry picking the studies that bolster their worldview, their preferred view, right? Mm -hmm. So they're cherry picking. And when we use the term science bias, it's also helpful because it allows us to say, hey, there are some instances when people are, get a little bit too excited about science. Mm. Um, so let me add a caveat to that. Science is our best route to understanding what's true about the world, right? right. There's, just, there's, no, there's no denying that. But any given study, right, any one study or any small group of studies, um, you will find instances, and this is where we start to think about maybe some bias on the left, uh, where people are overly credulous, mm -hmm. right? Where they might not be skeptical enough. And sometimes where people may exaggerate findings that lean in their direction, right? And and they may, may see them as saying more than they're actually saying. And so an example of this from is from a study I did with Jeremiah Gerritsen, where we found that around the time... Uh, a bunch of studies were published in the 1990s showing that sexual orientation is in part biological um, and probably in part, at least for some people, innate. You see a big jump in the number of liberals who say that sexual orientation is innate. But the jump goes further than what the studies said. You see a big jump and you see a lot of people on the left in particular, especially educated liberals, saying that sexual orientation is 100% innate mm. or almost completely innate, but that's not what the study said, right? So we think there that there's some evidence of bias going in a different 
direction. So you can see now, I think, why science denial is not the most helpful term. Okay, yeah, that's very fascinating. So you can be science biased in your refusal to believe results, but you can also be science biased in your over eagerness to sort of over update your beliefs based on science. Right. And, and this goes back to the notion of cherry picking too. Um, and so this certainly is not just relevant to the left. You can get very excited about one study. We can think about the famous study showing that was later, you know, debunked showing that there's a link between vaccines and autism. You can get excited about that study, right? Mm. And then you hang on to that study right. and then other people debunk the study, but you don't allow yourself to, to uh, no longer have faith in that one <clears throat> study that for whatever reason, uh, you know, you felt resonated with you. Right, right. Okay. So real quick though, just to clarify the basics, I want to back up to something you said a little bit before when you said that <clears throat> there is, is perhaps some association between science denial and conservatism descriptively because people on the left tend to be more educated and because people on the left tend to be more trusting of scientists. Is that, is that right? So so descriptively, if you look out into the world, generally you are going to find that people on the left are a little bit more, I guess, comfortable with science and people who are conservative are perhaps a little less comfortable with science. Um, But is it, but is it fair to say that after you control for education and for trust in science, then the, the differences basically wash out. Is that fair to say or no? Um, okay. So this is a very specific (laughs) claim. So after you control for education and, uh, you know, trust is is so wrapped up with this. So that's a little bit difficult, but to say, but, um, I do think that once you control for education, that a lot of the difference goes away. Right. Um, Right. Uh, that's yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't expect you to know for sure down to, uh, you know, a, a few decimal points or anything like that, but right. basically I could, I could quick, I could quick round a regression right now and double check <laughs> that for you. Right. Um, <laughs> well, so for, for instance, what I have in mind is in one of your articles, um, the one where you look at the effect of media messaging, um, right. the implication there, as far as I understood your research was that you were kind of, you, you kind of seem to be saying that, um, well, that, that I guess is more specifically about genetic attributions. So maybe, maybe we'll pause until we get into that more, more generally. Okay. So you're, okay. you're, you're, you're a little bit more careful when you talk about science bias in general, um, whether or not, I guess maybe the safest thing to say is that there's no particularly clear or straightforward or strong kind of bivariate relationship between ideology and science bias. It, there's probably, there might be something going on, but if there is, it's not. It's not uh, especially overwhelming or obvious. We could probably say that. I, that- I, I do. I mean, even if we're using my preferred term science bias, I do believe that in the U.S. there's a gap between the left and the right. Okay. Um, but a lot of it does uh, boil down to uh, differences in education levels. Um, sure. That's perfect. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We could- um, but 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 the gap is exaggerated, and and there's absolutely evidence of uh, bias, and also kind of more generally motivated motivated reasoning on the left. And we really shouldn't assume that that doesn't exist. Right. Okay. Perfect. Um, thank you for that. So, one thing that we can say though that a, a lot of your research talks about is that it's it's actually quite puzzling when you think about how kind of scientific explanations break down on the left and the right, because a lot of your research is specifically about uh, genetic explanations for human behavior and social phenomena. Mm-hmm. And something that, mm-hmm. something that you note throughout your research, and this seems to be, if, I, if I'm reading you correctly, seems to be one of the kind of motivating puzzles behind, behind your research to try to figure this out, is that, you know, you could actually see genetic explanations going left and going right. There are plausible reasons why it could be you know, quite attractive to have a genetic account of something. Uh, for if you're a conservative, for instance, uh, you write about how it it might be attract genetic explanations might be attractive to conservatives because they can kind of justify uh, racial or or class differences and therefore kind of mitigate demands for redistribution, which they dislike. Right. Uh, but you also note how it's just as easy to imagine a kind of left wing attraction to genetic explanations because, in principle 
they also can be used to mitigate blame and to generate sympathy in a kind of liberal direction. So I kind of see at the heart of a lot of your research this this kind of puzzle that in, in, in a weird way, genetic explanations don't have any particularly obvious or direct kind of um, ideological slant. And yet you do find them kind of um, being applied in motivated ways in, 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 in different contexts. Um, so, right. So maybe we just talk about that a little bit more because you, mm-hmm. you've done a lot to make a lot of progress on how this works and, and how these things break down. Um, so, okay. So there's this sort of widespread belief, uh, just like the, the more general kind of belief that I, we, we just talked about, about science bias in general, but more specifically with genetic explanations, I think there's a widespread belief that genetic explanations of human behavior and social phenomena tend to have a conservative slant. And I think that that's because of the, you know, the really high profile and notorious examples like we mentioned previously, people like Charles Murray, right? Once you start talking about right. anything like that, uh, people, you know, pretty much assume uh, this person must have a conservative agenda. Um, and so, but one pattern that emerges from from a few of your studies, I think, is that specifically if you look at the relationship between ideology and genetic explanations, now there, there's really no clear, simple bivariate relationship. Is that fair to say? Um, so that's generally fair. I mean, it's, it's, if you're going to do some on average kind of correlation, it depends on which genetic explanations you've thrown into your genetic explanation bucket. Right. right? Um, so there's going to be huge variation, you know, have you included in that bucket genetic explanations for disease, right? Or are you mainly talking about differences between ascriptive categories of people? You know, so what you throw in that bucket matters just to your overall correlation, but it is, it's absolutely true that, that uh, the common assumption that genetic explanations in general, kind of across the board um, are more attractive to people on the right that is not true. Right. Um, and, and, and this is something I actually wasn't, I, I was part of the conventional wisdom when I started doing this work mm. and I'm really surprised at what I found. And I actually think that, um, you know, there'll be, again, there'll be some caveats here, but I actually think we're seeing a trend with more and more liberals being more attracted to genetic explanations. And that's, that's not across the board. Charles Murray's a real person. Um, you know, Sam Harris is a real person. Yeah. So um, we can talk about kind of, uh, you know, how how to think about all of this. Right. Um, but it very much, it, you know, to, to say one important thing, it very much depends on what genetic explanation you're talking about, what kind of characteristic or behavior you are trying to explain or, you know, a lay person's trying to explain. Right. And so one of the big examples that your research highlights that sort of confounds the conventional wisdom I just described is specifically attitudes towards homosexuality. Is that right? Definitely. Right. Yeah. This is the poster child for a liberal flip. Right. And so I'm just curious, and this could be in other parts of your research or not at all. And just from your anecdotal observations, are there other examples that come to mind? Um, well, let's see. Uh, so, so that's really the big one. Um, yeah. and yeah, we can talk about that. It wasn't always true. It's become true in the last couple of decades. If one interesting one that, um, I think points to how attractive these explanations can be to people on the left is when you start talking about criminal culpability. Right. So there's some evidence that in the courtroom, um, if evidence is brought that, for example, somebody who's committed murder has some sort of supposed genetic predisposition toward violence, that um, if you present that, say, in a kind of a survey experiment type context, people on the left are going to be somewhat more open to that explanation, presumably because it's... Um, decreases the the criminal's culpability could decrease the harshness of the prison sentence. Right. That's right. So maybe we could go over what your basic viewpoint on the, on, on 
the underlying psychological model that's going on here. It, it seems like if I, if I read your work correctly, you seem to mostly subscribe to a kind of motivated reasoning story. Is that right? So people have kind of, they have in mind already the policies that they like or don't like, and then they will choose to endorse genetic explanations to the degree those genetic, those genetic explanations feel like they support the already desired policy. Uh, is that what you think is basically going on? Um, so that's, that's true. Um, although I'll, I'll add a little bit. So as, you know, as I do more and more work in this area, I'm kind of building out my framework. And, um, so I started with a more simple motivated reasoning framework. Um, and, um, I'm actually starting to realize how much media framing matters. So think about individuals, lay people, as they interact with scientific knowledge, they're not like reading academic papers, they're reading media accounts. Right. And so how the media frames things, emphasizing certain things, de-emphasizing other matters a lot um, and, and kind of interacts with motivated reasoning. Um, and then there's another piece of this that I, I haven't done um, research yet specifically on uh, scientific reasoning, but that's, you know, who our peers are probably matter a lot too. And I don't want to forget that. Um, and, you know, maybe we can, we can talk about that. But I, I think that to some extent there's also direct peer influence on um, what our, our causal explanations are for, for human differences. Okay. That's interesting about peer effects that kind of, yeah. that kind of, this is a bit of a tangent and we can get back on the main path at any time, but that also made me, uh, that reminds me of the, the point about education that you brought up earlier, because mm -hmm. I actually noted education is something I've kind of been interested in recently. And I noted in a few of your articles, you know, education is an obvious, uh, control variable. Uh, but, it actually had some interesting effects I noticed in, in, in some of them. Like yeah. in one of the articles, I noticed that um, education, it, this is, I think, the uh, your article on does biology justify ideology, the 2013 piece. Um, I think mm -hmm. I noted there that education was positively associated with genetic explanations for everything, but oh. but the racial differences. Uh, where it, okay. where it yep. was education was negatively associated with genetic explanations for racial differences, but positively associated with individual differences, um, you know, social and class differences, I think it was. And so that was kind of interesting. And I, that you just made me think of that because you mentioned peer effects. Um, so I don't know if you, if you want to add anything there. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a social scientist and somebody who does public opinion research, um, education is, is that variable when you put it in a model is, um, kind of mysterious because it can be a proxy for so many different yes. things. Um, it might literally mean, you know, somebody's sophistication level, um, in one study, uh, I basically use it as a, um, with the co-author use it as a, a proxy for likely media uh, exposure because we didn't have a media exposure measure. Mm -hmm. Um, in the case that, you know, I absolutely think there's something to that as people go through education levels in the United States, um, they, you know, it's an educational kind of socialization effect right. where in general, people get more excited about genetics and biology and that role in human behavior. But, um, you know, perhaps appropriately, the notion that biology helps us understand large, on average, group differences in the United States um, is not part of that menu, right? right. Um, so, right, uh, and and and, but but also, you as you said, it, it may also be a peer effect too, with you know, among more educated people. Uh, so it's there's a lot potentially going on there. It'd be interesting to, to look at further. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can totally just leave that as an open question, but I, I do note that as an interesting uh, data point. So, right. Okay. So, um, let's see. So, you basically seem to think that, um, right. So, you're, you're building out your framework and you're interested in uh, maybe framing effects, media effects. Um, but exactly. but the, the basic kind of underlying mechanism is... It, it, tell me if this is correct or please correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically you seem mm -hmm. to think like conservatives will uh, uh, lean towards genetic explanations if they feel like it can mitigate demands for redistribution, which they, which is the main kind of driving thing that they dislike. 
so if genetic mm-hmm. explanations can mitigate demands for redistribution, they'll cling to it. Um, and you think that leftists, um, uh, and by the way, forgive me, I'm in the UK, so I've kind of untrained, I've had to train myself to not say liberal <laughs> because it just confuses, right? So ah, if I, if I say it. leftist okay. or, you know, I, I mean that interchangeably with what you have in mind when you say liberal, okay. um, uh, I'll also work on that. It's yes. all good. Okay. Uh, everyone will know what you mean. Um, liberals or leftists will lean towards genetic explanations if they think that it can generate sympathy or kind of decrease blame for uh, perhaps oppressed people. Is that is that fair to say? So it's it's the same motivated reasoning psychology, you think, but mm-hmm. it's sort of mm-hmm. qualitatively distinct uh, kind of thought processes in some sense. Is that fair to say? I, I think that's right. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's been very puzzling to me that you see these, um, these differences popping up, um, you know, whether the right or the left embraces genetic explanation in these different domains. And I've been working through trying to, to understand why that happens. And so kind of the first step is thinking about, um, what, how people interpret genetic explanations, first mm-hmm. of all, and then, um, how that changes depending on what domain you're talking about. Hmm. So, you know, so we want to think about, okay, what does a genetic explanation mean to ordinary people? For ordinary folks, if something is genetic, it means it can't be changed. And it also means that it's not under a person's control. Those are obviously related, but distinct. So you put that out there. And then you also, how these uh, play out for people on the left and the right, um, also changes depending on what kind of human difference you're talking about. So as you noted, if you're talking about resource differentials, the notion that resource differentials, think about vast inequality in the United States, cannot be changed, that is going to resonate more. That's going to be appealing to people who are economic conservatives in particular. In the U.S., you know, we have to differentiate between the social conservatives and the economic conservatives. But economic conservatives, I have a new study also finding that people who are very, very rich in the United States find genetic explanations for inequality particularly appealing. Mm. So, you know, this is, it's not just about politics now. They're actually finding a way to justify their place at the very top of the economic ladder. So, Yep. So the resource differentials, but then you get into the social domain, you get into things like sexual orientation, you get into, you know, non-normative behaviors. And now things start to look different. Um, Now, actually, this notion that behavior can't be changed, you know, maybe that um, that is not under a person's control. Um, Now, this is something that appeals more to social liberals or libertarians or however you want to think Mm -hmm. about it. Um, Because we're on the one hand, not only are we saying we can't blame individuals for these behaviors that some find, you know, distasteful, some, some don't, some don't like, not only are we saying that you can't blame people, but also we're saying it can't be changed. There's no point in trying for government to try to restrict, you know, sexual behavior. Uh, so, you know, as you move from domain to, to domain to domain, this, these simple ideas, this, the, the belief that the behavior can't be changed, that it's not under the person's control, it has different political implications, right? That changes whether or not that explanation is going to appealing, be appealing to liberals or conservatives. Right. Um, and then we haven't even gotten into really group differences is, is somewhat of its own thing. Um, meaning, um, in my mind, uh, you know, thinking about ascriptive, um, large social categories, racial, ethnic categories, um, also gender differences. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the, one of the reasons that this is just so fascinating and, and confusing is because, you know, yes. conservatives generally favor internal kind of causal accounts and, and, and Correct. leftists or liberals generally favor external, meaning, you know, conservatives really like to think and talk about things like personal responsibility. Um, right. It really is more consistent with their kind of moral psychology, whereas leftists really like to p- point out how structural factors, um, you know, and social factors affect us. Um, and so this is so fascinating because once you start talking about genetics, it, it, it all gets kind of turned upside down. 
So it does, and this is this is one of the things I'm, I'm working yeah. through with my with my work um, is that. So conservatives in the U.S. they love internal explanations, personal responsibility, individualism. Mm-hmm. But there's also, especially in recent decades, a big uh, emphasis among U.S. conservatives on um, on this notion that uh, yes, individuals um, ultimately are responsible for their lives, um, but that is rooted in their choices. It's rooted in free will. Mm-hmm. It's not rooted in genes. That's not part of at least the on-the-surface conservative rhetoric in the United States in the last several decades. It's all about choice and free will. And, um, you know, we can, of course, tell a story about why that's convenient for various um, uh, conservative folks. Um mm-hmm. It certainly bolsters uh, conservative programs, but the emphasis hasn't been on genes. And you can see how genetic explanations in some ways undercuts this emphasis on, on free will. So, and, and, so genes, in terms of the political implications, if we're thinking specifically about resource differentials, it's a mixed bag for conservatives. And this is what I'm talking about in some of my newer work. On the one hand... We do have, going back to this idea, for the layperson, if they believe that, you know, ultimately some people are rich and some people are poor because some people are just born smarter than others, the lay interpretation, and I'm careful to say lay interpretation because this isn't what scientists would say, but uh, the lay interpretation is you can't change that, you know, sharp economic ladder. You're always going to have rich and poor, nothing government can do about it. So that cuts in the conservative direction, but it cuts against the conservative direction if you think, well, wait a second, what you're saying is that there isn't free will. Shouldn't we like show some mercy? (laughs) Shouldn't shouldn't we have some empathy? Maybe we should have a strong welfare state to at least take care of these individuals who by no fault of their own, just kind of luck of the genetic draw ended up at the bottom. Now this is, <laughs> this is where I start to get uncomfortable with this conversation because I don't believe that this is why we have rich and poor. Um, uh-huh. But again, in public opinion land, um, this is how it shakes out. Right. So no, I think that's a really good and important point when you talk about the lay interpretation, because I think this actually really confounds a lot of people, especially highly educated people who like to, you know, think at a high level and talk at a high level in, in public, because, you know, I know a lot of people who maybe are interested in genetic explanations that, you know, uh, they are able to think about it very clearly and scientifically. And they understand that a genetic account or, you know, that there's a difference between genetic determinism and simply talking about heritability and that, you know, genes, uh, genes do not directly cause things. Uh, so they feel like they can, they can, pursue certain ideas or make certain claims. Um, and, and it's not necessarily, you know, politically or socially problematic. Uh, but when you focus on how people, how normal people are, you know, for all intents and purposes going to interpret things, then, you know, you could get, you could give someone a scientifically very reasonable statement that all of a sudden has, you know, dangerous and, and, and fraught, uh, you know, social effects. Right. And this is, I mean, this is a a debate right now in uh, people who are engaged in science studies, um, which I'm, you know, on the periphery of is um, how much responsibility do scientists have when they, when they are doing these studies um, to think about how the public will receive them, right? How much responsibility do science reporters have to think about how the public will receive them? Right. Um, and there's, there's, um, it, it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, I, my wager would be that that question itself breaks down in important ways ideologically. So that, I mean, my, my mm-hmm. hunch is that, you know, there's a certain kind of, uh, there's a certain type of, you know, very analytical, often libertarian, right leaning type, type of person mm-hmm. who, you know, basically wants to just, you know, look at data and say whatever they find. And the idea that they would be socially uh, responsible for how those, you know, claims that they're making straight from the data would be, would filter down into different people's uh, perception. The idea that they should be morally or, or socially responsible for that is like, is mm-hmm. ridiculous to them. Like they think, 
you know, <laughs> I, and I think that's 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 in part determined by their ideological worldview. Whereas I think people on the left uh, take it for granted that people should think holistically about the consequences of what they what, of what they say in public. Um, you know, and I wonder if that's actually possibly part of a social scientific kind of uh, explanation of what's so kind of vexing and maddening about about, you know, the, these recurring culture wars that really have been, you know, reigniting mm-hmm. periodically since the early 1990s. It's like differing uh, frameworks for understanding, you know, the responsibilities that we have or don't have with simply saying what, you know, seems true to us or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's something to that. I, you know, I think that, um, I think that there's, so there's a political dimension to this, but I actually think some of what you talk about is, is not political per se. I think that there are some people who are much more cognizant of the role that, um, that, <laughs> I mean, and we'll, we'll right away be able to see the political dimension of this, but, but there are people who are more conscious of, of the role of our, of our peers, um, in, of society and shaping how we think about things. And some people are less cognizant of that. And, and I think, I think some of what you see, I, I'm not going to argue that this explains a huge amount of variance, but I think some of what you see is, is frankly, um, um, yeah, people who are more or less tuned into, social influence. Um, and some people just aren't some of those analytical folks that you, um, that you describe, I I think really underappreciate the extent to which, uh, who we are is, uh, what we think is shaped by shaped by others. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good point. I think also sensitivity to social punishments and things like that. Very, 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 you know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. um, I think that could so this is this is kind of like another vector. I, I'm not sure it's political directly. No, that's true, but it would obviously be correlated with yeah. the ideological dimensions, yeah. right? Um, so okay, cool. So no need to get too caught up on that. So um, <laughs> in one of your articles, that uh, that article on on lay beliefs about biopolitics, the 2017 article, something I noted that w- I thought was very interesting there was that you find that genetic explanations of ideology. So here you're looking at um, pointing to genetics as an explanation for why people would be, you know, on the left or on the right. Uh, genetic explanations of ideology correlate with greater intolerance uh, and outgroup avoidance, uh, right? So the basic idea there is, uh, right? So uh, if I understand that correctly, then the basic idea there is that yes. if you think people's ideology is a function of of their genetics, then you're going to be a little bit more turned off to 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 them in some sense you're going to see them as as you said you know the lay interpretation is that if it's genetic that means it's unchangeable um and so it's almost like a genetic explanation of ideology seems to maybe make people think like it's not worth talking with you know opposing viewpoints because it's all fixed and determined or something like that that's obviously a very uh, colloquial interpretation of the finding but yeah, no, that's great. Um, so, yeah, so this is a different type of article I did. Um, there are some political scientists who have done research, um, mainly twin studies, and they have found that, you know, whether you're on the left or you're on the right appears to have a, a fairly significant innate component. And um, I'm going to guess your listeners are familiar with some of this mm-hmm. Um work. And so, so with some co-authors, some psychologists, we did a study on, not on the science of what underlies political ideology, but what the reaction is to learning about these supposed innate influences on political ideology. And what was so interesting for us was that um, the conventional wisdom, at least in political science, and in part because some of the authors of this work were pushing this interpretation is that when lay people learn that political ideology is in part innate, that this will suddenly make them more tolerant of the other mm-hmm. side. This was the kind of conventional That's thinking right. coming in. And we, and we weren't, we honestly weren't certain. We knew that there wasn't evidence yet of this, right? Um, we knew it could be the case because of what you see with sexual orientation. Um, there there is a history of, of some people taking genetic explanations for a, what some people 
would say is a, a dislike behavior and, um, and taking that and becoming more tolerant, uh, because the, this group of people is quote unquote, not to blame. So this was the, this was the, um, the framework of, of what some people were arguing in, in political science. Uh, the other possibility though, is that you could have a reaction that looks more like what you see in the realm of race, which is racial prejudice often has a genetic component, mm. right? So we, for people, I mean, if traditionally in the United States, around the world, um, racism actually has been very much wrapped up with notions of biological differences between mm -hmm. groups. And so there, nobody's saying, oh, but that other group, you know, it's not their fault. It's not their fault that they have these characteristics we don't right. like. So I'm going to be tolerant of them. That's not happening at all. What happens there is that genetics becomes a way of um, clearly differentiating groups, right? And going back to this, no, these ideas I raised earlier, gene signals that differences can't be changed. So stereotypes of the opposite group are rendered permanent, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and so this was a, another reason, this was a possible reason why we thought you might actually get the opposite result, that the reaction to political ideology being innate was actually less tolerance for the other side. We, did, we didn't do an experimental study. We did just a correlational study. And what we found was, yes, people who believe, again, yeah. in the U.S., folks who believed that political ideology is more innate, so this is all relative. So if you believe political ideology is more innate, you were more likely to be intolerant of the political opposition. Right. Now, the question is, how do you explain that, given that there are these two different alternatives um, that both could be in play in people's minds? And um, part of our explanation is that when you have an intergroup context where there's a strong intergroup rivalry, mm. um, intergroup competition, strong animosity between groups, that the genetics just serves to, the genetic ideas just serve to reinforce that animosity because it renders that other group as just being permanently different mm. from you, right? Uh, sharpens group boundaries. And so in that context, um, which is different from what's been going on with sexual orientation in the U.S., right? In a context with that rivalry, that animosity, genetic stories don't help increase tolerance. They, they, they put it, they force right, it in the other right. direction. Yeah. That's fascinating. Also something I noticed in that article is that the, you look at an interaction between the genetic explanation of ideology and, uh, ideology itself, I believe. And there, the results were a bit mixed. It wasn't completely robust. Um, but I do believe that you found the effect is actually greater among liberals than conservatives. Um, yeah, so we had, so we had That's two right. studies in there and we had that effect in one study, not the other. And, um, so we were a little bit uh, cautious right. about saying anything about that, but, but this is again, one of these places where you can't just, you know, <laughs> pin the bad effect on, on folks on the right. 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 And I'm, I'm certainly not trying to do um, the opposite, but it's just, What's what, it's only because the conventional wisdom that I've become so familiar with for the past several years is that so much of this stuff is pinned on conservatives. Um, I, I just find it very, mm -hmm. you know, salient and, and fascinating that whenever, you know, I find little data points that are like, oh, no, actually, in weird ways, um, liberals are perhaps just as guilty of certain things, but maybe in different ways. I mean, one way to read one way to mm -hmm. read that, though, is just yeah. that uh, if the effect is greater for liberals than conservatives, it might be in part because liberals are just higher in tolerance and openness. So like they would have, you know, farther to fall or something like that. I don't know. I'm uh, speculating. Uh -huh. but. Right. Right. I, 
and and we may have I, I don't remember if this ended up in the final version, but we did definitely talk about that um, some this the idea that there's a different baseline possibly for for liberals right. yeah for those on the left and these kinds of things matter right when you're and, um, this is you know why social science is is so difficult um, and complicated is um, you, you start talking about interaction effects and um, there are many reasons why you might come up with with an interaction yeah, for sure like that. Uh, of course i'm only speculating i just find it <laughs> it's very interesting that this story is uh really so much more complicated than people would think so okay yeah, so yeah. we've covered a lot of ground i mean maybe one last thing we could talk about is your article or, or your work more generally on on the role that media plays in all of this um and in some sense this might kind of bring mm-hmm. us back full circle to uh, maybe having something useful or constructive to say about, uh, you know, m- debates in the media today, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, you can put you can put your findings in your own words, of course. Um, but it seems to me that one implication of of your research is that media messages might really be what's driving the the politicization of of science and genetics in particular. That is to say, without media messaging you seem to kind of think that genetic explanations would be relatively unactivated, we might say. Um, Yeah, that's, I think it's really important to point that out. (laughs) And I, I miss that sometimes when I'm talking about this, there's always the potential for motivated reasoning, but think about the ordinary person. They're not interacting much with science, right? This stuff is also really complicated. Um, And it, you know, this, there's actually, a, I think, a fair amount of, of political science that would that would back me up here, going back to people like Phil Converse, going to uh, John Zoller. If you don't explicitly draw out the political implications of something that in and of itself seems non-political, folks mm. aren't going to do much with it politically. Right. Well, you know, if you're if you're going to have a genetic finding and and no journalist for you draws out any kind of social or value or political orientations, a person's going to read it and say, that's nice and move on. So this, Mm -hmm. I think, is very consistent with something we were talking about earlier, where we were saying that the, you know, there there might be some relationship between ideology and science denial or, you know, specifically the case of genetic explanations. Uh, But if there is some sort of relationship, it's Mm -hmm. certainly not simple. And and if there is a bivariate relationship, it's it's probably only a, a relatively weak one. Um, so this seems to be consistent with that, meaning that to the degree we observe really heated, controversial, politicized debates over scientific explanations or genetic explanations in particular, it, it probably means that Mm -hmm. things are being stoked by particular framings. Is that, that seems like a fair inference to you? Right. Right. I mean, I think that there are a couple of different ways that media can can influence us. I think more than we like to believe, there can be actually sometimes mm-hmm. just very okay. direct effects, frankly. You know, if we go back to the debate we started with, um, with Sam Harris and Ezra Klein, you know, your liberals are going to say, huh, this is Ezra Klein's view. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and And they follow along and you know, conservatives are, are more interested in Sam Harris's view. And so, you know, to some extent there's, there's just direct, um, cueing is, you know, a common word used in political science, um, as well as communication literature. So there are cues that come from media elites that come from, to some extent from political elites and, you know, one, a one-off cue doesn't matter, but you know, they accumulate, we follow along. So that's a direct effect. And then I think there's this indirect effect where even if there's not that particular cueing, the media framing can play up or play down certain implications. So, you know, to go back to a study I did um, with my co-author, Alexander Moranchese, who's at uh, the University of Montreal. So we have a, a study that came out in 2017 in the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Politics, um, where we... <sighs> In, in interpreting our data, we, this is, we couldn't find, we don't have direct experimental evidence of this, but interpreting our data, we think that there's this kind of media framing effect going on. So what we looked at is we looked at 
um, you know, the, um, the finding that was really trumpeted in the early 2000s that, that there are not major genetic differences right. between broad racial groups. And so there's that finding. And then it was taken by the media and it was trumpeted, maybe appropriately so, but it was trumpeted as, you know, a triumph for racial egalitarianism. And, you know, it was just heavily framed in the media as, you know, implying that, you know, once and for all, we finally see that, that blacks and whites in the U.S. Are, are all the same underneath their skin, that, you know, we shouldn't treat people differently, that um, and some media reports, you know, took this further and said, so when you think about the fact that there are some resource, resource differentials between these groups, this is certainly not something that's genetically caused. It's something that's environmentally caused, right? And so as you get these mm-hmm. political meanings piled on top of it, then you have your partisans, your ideologues right. that react differently to it. And... And you and we did find evidence that, in particular, conservatives, especially if they were more attuned to, they were more interested in debates over uh, genetics in general, that they were much less likely to believe right. the original scientific reporting if they were, um, you know, essentially uh, attuned to this, to the media debate surrounding it, right? And the media debate surrounding it was, was politicized. Again, maybe appropriately right. so, but... Um, That's right. And the, so the, the findings there are really quite ironic because what it means is that the, you know, the media actors, yeah. the journalists who report on these findings, drawing out kind of the, you know redistributive uh implications of them are actually an active force in making like half of the population uh reject the the scientific findings in some sense is that how you read it Uh, that seems to be some of some of what happened yeah and i i i won't argue that it was inappropriate to do that Oh, you find Um, it inappropriate the the, uh, the political implications that were drawn from it oh right okay got it no, I won't. I won't argue that. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I guess I would say, at least when it's communicated in an already politicized environment right. around certain issues. Right. Well, it's interesting because it's like yeah. so much of the media around these controversies. The media, a lot of media actors kind of make it seem like like they have incentives to make it seem like the science itself is dangerous or has political implications. They're kind of like selling to their, to their followers, this, Mm -hmm. this idea that scientific findings have a, have a political edge, whether it be liberal or conservative, obviously both sides do it to their, to their different followings. But in some sense, that is actually, that actually might be the main driver of the political implications in some sense the the fact that the media is choosing to the media will always choose to draw out these politicized implications right that that on some level uh might be the only thing that's really making science uh politically dangerous <laughs> right and i um you know, on, on the one hand, it's okay to have some reporting along those lines, but I guess I would say it would be nice to really bolster our reporting of, of just our kind of more straightforward <laughs> reporting of, of scientific studies. Um, so what's happened in the United States, um, and, you know, you can, sure. I'm reporting on, on what I've read, you know, original research done by others. What's happening in the United States is that, um, so newsrooms have their budgets have shrunk. Um, so they have fewer individuals to do fewer specialized individuals Mm -hmm. to do science reporting. General assignment reporters have tended to take over with much of the science reporting, um, including political reporters, right? So the general assignment and political reporters, they're more likely to, to bring the politics in as opposed to the people who are, who are science reporters. Um, at the same time, again, going back to um, really the news media um, 
you know, struggling in the United States is, you know, there's a real emphasis on sensationalism right. in order to get people to click, you know, to draw eyeballs, et cetera. And so I, I do think that there is, there is too much of an emphasis on controversy um, within science in, in reporting on science. And, you know, so there's um, one study done um, by Erica Franklin Fowler and a co-author co in, in a, the annals uh, edited issue that I mentioned that I did with Jamie Druckmann called The Politics of Science. And um, so one upshot of all of this, too, is that actually people wow, trust science yeah less across the board when it's reported on as being controversial, right? So that's just an across the board effect. And yeah, okay. um, that's, obviously that that's, makes it even more interesting as you, I guess as, as you have these sort of media incentives mm -hmm. to increase kind of polarized, sensationalized, uh, politicized scientific findings, mm -hmm. you get both camps kind of veering farther off into their own worlds and the actual baseline across the lay population uh, decreases across the board in their estimation of science as a, as a whole, mm -hmm. man. Yeah. That it's fascinating. Yeah. And so yeah, what I you found in right. your article right. uh, that looked at the, the media effect uh, you look specifically at a case of scientific mm -hmm. findings being linked to left wing redistributive implications. And you find uh, evidence of a kind of backfire effect among conservatives. So conservatives uh, are likely to hear that and double down on their, their previously held beliefs. Um, do you, you have, you would suspect the same thing would hold if you did it uh, with a, a controversial kind of uh, scientific finding that's linked to some sort of uh, right wing claim. Uh, you, you suspect that left wing listeners or readers would, would see the same backfire effect in their, in their own uh, interpretations, or do you think it would be different for some reason? Um, yeah. And, and actually, I, you know, there's, there's a very new study that um, is no, just oh coming boy. out Good. in the journal of politics. Sorry to be plugging my research here, but <laughs> um, so a new, a new article with Jeremiah Gerritsen that's in, it's in the journal of politics. Um, so in this article, we actually found a little bit of evidence for this, although we see it on the right and left. Um, we actually, the, what we wanted to do with this article was see whether we could actually increase, increase or decrease tolerance um, toward lesbians and gay men based on whether or not we could change people's beliefs okay. about the extent to which sexual orientation was innate. So this was experimental, um, and, you know, I think a empirically really solid study. Um, what we found, um, oh, that's okay. a little bit off track for, for my present point, but, but the one, one of the upshots was that we were able to change people's factual beliefs about what underpins sexual orientation, Interesting. but it did not lead to them changing their attitudes. But what I but what I wanted to say was that you know as part of this, um, our we put together two experimental treatments. The experimental treatments were truthful; we didn't lie to anybody. But what we did is we cherry picked our scientific studies, <clears throat> and some people were exposed to scientific studies that really that really doubled down on this idea that sexual orientation is mostly innate. And then we also found some scientific studies that. Um, that cast a fair amount of doubt on the studies suggesting sexual orientation is innate. So for example, you know, a failed replication of one of the genetic studies, that sort of thing. And what we found was that when we showed people, so for the group that received the, the not biological treatment, which has, you know, the upshot is that sexual orientation is shaped by one's environment or maybe one's choices, what we found is that um, hmm. conservatives were more likely to believe that treatment and liberals, we didn't find a backfire effect, but, but liberals So how do you, how do you interpret that? <laughs> what's the upshot of that, do you think? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, th okay. I think this goes back to the, to, to motivated reasoning. 
where, um, uh, you know, there's a real, you know, it's a one-shot study. And so, um, you know, we don't want to make too much of it, but, but there appear, appear to be a real resistance to, to letting go of, of the notion that very, sexual very orientation was, well, I was guess I would just made. maybe ask you in closing, if you, do you have any thoughts as a scholar of public opinion towards science, you know, do, when you look out at the, all of the kind of controversial debates today, do you have any kind of last words or thoughts that you often think about regarding, you know, how your understanding of, of psychology and political science might, you know, contribute to perhaps ameliorating some of the, the, the really quite, I think, I think vicious and uh, frightening kind <laughs> of uh, animosity and, and, and levels of vitriol that you find in, in debates about things like genetics, you know, these, these like fairly arcane uh, scientific topics have come to have just so much, um, so much animosity packed into them that I I just wonder if as an observer of all this, uh, are there, are there any kind of last things you, you might, you might say about it all? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I probably could say a fair amount, but I won't take up too much of your time, your listeners' time. But um, you know, on the one hand, I I get why mm-hmm. genetic explanations have become so fraught. Um, you know, as a woman, when I come across arguments that you know lower math scores among women is probably because of um, you know mm. something in our DNA. I don't feel good about that. Um, you know, so, you know, there are, there are real, um, you know, there's, there's, there's some, there are some real, um, there are real feelings (laughs) and, and not just that. I mean, it goes beyond feelings and respect, but, you know, we have seen genetic explanations in particular mm. lead to some very uh, beyond mm. awful outcomes, of course. You know, we go back to the Holocaust, for example. Um, so this is fraught, and there are some very good reasons that it's fraught. Um, at, at the same time, you know, thinking about just, I mean, if we can back up from this and just think about science in general, um, and motivated reasoning is, is, you know, I think that we, we all need to be more cognizant of biases that we bring to the world, including our interpretation of this kind of information. And I mean, I'm not going to be able to start this on my own, but I think there needs to be more public conversation Mm -hmm. about how common it is among everybody, not just the group you hate, um, to, to want to get science and facts on your side. And the fact that all else equal, I mean, unless you're pretty much not human, you are going to have some bias toward believing studies that, you know, accord with, your worldview, your values that bolster your ego. (laughs) Um, And, and so, and this is something that's fluid, that it's, it's implicit. It's, you know, not even conscious basically, but I think we should have more conversations like this. We should um, hopefully have it more in public consciousness. It's the kind of thing that you probably need to, have in your mind to consciously check, right. Your, your own biases and, and, you know, hopefully with more recognition, uh, some of that, some of that bias can, can decrease. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's a, that's a very good message. And I think you're right. Like, I think if the more you take motivated reasoning seriously, just in your own mm-hmm. psyche, the more, the, the harder it is to really like feel, uh, you know, too strongly about anything in a kind of public debate, you know, because you're kind of like constantly, you really do start to realize how much almost everything someone wants to say in public mm-hmm. is this kind of like post hoke rationalization mm-hmm. uh, process. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, so I think, I think it's a really good 
it's a good point you make that the more everyone can become aware of that, the more it will tend to kind of just uh, probably have beneficial effects for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about yourself you know. and, and don't be afraid to check others. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, also I would say like, I think your research is quite a nice palliative in some sense, because, you know, I think you're, you're very conscientious to point out that you, you take very seriously the, the real uh, political risks and dangers that are associated with different types of causal explanations. And, and I, I totally agree with you. Um, but I think the, on the other hand, the, the way that your research tends to kind of, uh, converge on this idea that, you know, science denial or science bias doesn't have a, a particularly strong kind of left wing or right wing slant. Yep. And that actually, and that actually for most people uh, who don't care that much about science, uh, you know, for most people, uh, different types of scientific explanations for phenomena just are really not that you know, significant in some sense, or I'm not putting words into your mouth. I'm just yeah, saying, you yeah, know, this yeah, is kind of yeah. how, how I'm, how I'm kind of interpreting it. Right. It's, you it's, know, I think that's it's a, a mediated relationship where it depends on what others are saying around you, the media is saying, et cetera. I, I think yeah. you said earlier, it, it can become kind of triggered or, or something along those lines. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's what you find in, in that, in that article that before the media messaging, you have a hard time finding any difference, you know, between left and right mm-hmm. on, on, genetic explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's after the media effect comes in that the divergence and the polarization happens. And, you know, I think like when people look at, especially today at the really fraught, uh, kind of controversies that get kind of summarized as the, the so-called culture wars, you know, you really, w- one way to see all of that is like, those are just radioactive explosions of motivated reasoning in some sense. It's like media effect upon media effect, iterated over time um you know and then like put in these like high pressure chambers you know what i mean and it's so it's like if you yeah i I think that it's it's useful to see how much of that is probably just driven by uh yeah motivated reasoning and 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 media effects and i think by giving people that kind of understanding of, of how those effects feed in everyone's able to kind of see like that there is a more healthy and much more relaxed uh, baseline that, that actually characterizes most people most of the time. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of like a useful cold bath. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And don't, yeah. Don't assume that, that the media conversation is exactly what ordinary people are thinking. And and the last empirical point I would, I would make here to really emphasize what you've just said is that, um, in some newer work, you know, all of this changes too over time. Of course it does. Right. Because, as we're talking mm-hmm. about the, the conversation changes and people are triggered differently, et cetera. But in some very recent work I have, um, and, and this actually, this, I guess this backs up, a you know, my original POQ, POQ article, um, from I think 2013. Um, if you, if you put like race and gender and class aside and you just start asking about, well, Hey, how much is a, is IQ genetic? What about people's drive to succeed? How much of that is genetic? Mm. You see either no difference between left and right, or actually in some more recent work, I'm seeing a slight uptick with liberals more likely to endorse that. So, you know, basically don't, <laughs> yeah, don't take the media conversation and think, you know, what at least ordinary Americans are thinking. Yeah, for sure. Well, Liz, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of your research. I think it's really important. And I think, you, you know, the, I appreciate the, it. yeah, you're very welcome. I mean, I think the more people can look at these sorts of really controversial public debates, but broken down into their, into their kind of, uh, objective psychological component parts and just look at things social scientifically. I think it's like one of the, you know, coolest and most valuable things that social scientists can, can do for society today. And it's exactly the kind of research I'm you know, most interested in. So, uh, thank you so much for, uh, and you know, humoring my questions. Uh, they were great. This, is, <laughs> this, has, been a, this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed yourself. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Thanks Liz. All right. Well, I'll let you go now. All right, thanks Dustin. Okay. All right, take care. Take care. Cheers.